Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Extra Canon podcast. Um, this week we're going to have a bit of a, of a short episode, uh, both Mac and I are a bit constrained with time, uh, but we, we thought that we had to deliver as always, so, so here we are. Um, this week, of course, no Europa League action. Uh, save that for next week as, as Arsenal take on Villarreal in a massive first leg. Uh, but no, this week there's still plenty of football news to talk about. Uh, Arsenal are playing Everton tomorrow. Um, and, you know, there's all the fallout of the events that occurred earlier in the week. But um, first of all, let me introduce uh, my guest for today. Well, not really a guest. He, he's the co-host. He's the main man. He's, he's the guy who's here every week. It's Mac Johnson. How are we doing, Mac? I'm doing all right. Doing a lot better than I have the past uh, the past couple of days. You know, the beginning of this week was um, hell, yeah. and it's no longer hell. So, I'm I'm definitely happy about that. Just excited to move on with you know an actual world of football as opposed to one where you know I might not be a fan anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, that was that was where it was. Um, that was the level, and we have thank God backed down from that point. So yeah, just excited for. A nice normal Premier League clash against Everton, and then what's hopefully going to be a very good game against Villarreal. Yeah, it feels almost surreal to be talking about football again after um, that sort of whirlwind of a start of the week that we had. Um, and yeah, it, it it feels good to be able to think about just you know normal things again, like injuries and lineups, and yeah, just all, all the the normal chatter really, but. Before we get into it, of course, uh, Alfie and I um, reacted to the news that the, the Super League broke out earlier this week. Uh, we released that on the on the main show. What has been your sort of main takeaway from 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 this week of absolute football and chaos? I don't know. It's been interesting um, because it's kind of been it's it's very much been a dichotomy of two takeaways. Um, for the first couple of days, especially, you know, Sunday, Monday, especially, it felt like um, it kind of felt powerless to stop anything, you know, mm. um, because Sunday was the day when everything dropped and there were far more detailed plans than we'd had in the past. And then Monday kind of went into that more like there were more talks about clubs sticking with it and leaving and more potential sanctions from UEFA. And it just felt like the first two days of it were just an absolute rabbit hole. Um, and, you know, I kind of felt that as a fan and as a supporter of the club, aside from being entitled to my opinion and ranting about it on Twitter, I couldn't really do anything. And then, yeah. you know, in the past couple of days, there's been obviously this massive turnaround that we're going to get into. But like, it's it's felt that the fans actually do have some representative power at the club. You know, I mean, to quote one of the Sky Sports presenters that I was looking at, uh, you know, some of the Twitter clips that have come up. He was like, you know, the big the big cheeses, the big men that run this club and these clubs that have kind of joined this, whether it's the Glazers or KSE or, you know, Fenway Group or whoever, right? Mm -hmm. They aren't as big and aren't as important as they think they are. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was kind of, it was just a relief, really, of course, to have everything over with, but especially to have some consolation almost that being a fan, I can actually potentially make a difference. Um, I mean, you look at the clubs that have left and almost universally, not sure that's true or not, but almost universally, they've cited the fact that 
the fans protesting against it was kind of the main impetus to leave because they got such massive backlash from everybody involved. Now, of course, that includes players, that includes coaches in England, that includes Boris. I think it's the first time I'll ever really, really praise Boris, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, because he was instrumental in dismantling the English side of the ESL. And it's just been, I don't know, it's 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 almost been like a massive detox just to kind of have all of this negative shit flushed from my system in like two days um so it's been definitely difficult especially emotionally but at the same time i'm you know i'm happy we've returned to normalcy yeah you're right there's there's sort of that um i I like that sort of idea of a detox because you know when alfie and i were recording it it seemed perilous and it seemed that all we could say was you know stay united as fans uh and and we'll see what what comes of that. And you know, I'm not going to lie; I had very little faith that anything would come of that. I thought money would reign supreme, as it as it so often does in in this world that we live in. But yeah, it, to to see it dismantle so quickly, you know, it's all they they completely juxtaposed each other. Two two nights on Twitter for me, probably afternoons for you, but. You know, the first night when all the news of the Super League was breaking out and then a few days later when it was all falling apart. I mean, yeah, it, it was very satisfying to see it, to see it fall apart. And, and what are your thoughts on, on the way it did fall apart almost so so instantly after it started? It, it was really quite a pathetic uh, European Super League, in, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, to hear a lot of the people who founded it talk, um, Perez, you know, Florentino Perez has actually come out and spoken about this, but mm. they, there were four main instigators. Um, it was Perez, of course, um, Agnelli at Juventus, KSE, Kroenke, Arsenal, um, and then the Glazers at Man U. And those were kind yeah. of the four figureheads of everything. Um, and then FSG, the Fenway group, Liverpool's owners joined shortly after and kind of made that a five some is that a word I don't like it anyway um (laughs) but yeah and from there it was a lot of peer pressure you know once um Real Madrid were on board they almost immediately got Barcelona on board and then Atletico were kind of forced to join once Juventus was on board they got AC Milan on board and then Inter was forced to join um, and once Liverpool, Arsenal, and Man U were all on board, Chelsea, Spurs, and City were like, well, well we're screwed now. Um, it, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember, but in the original announcement of the ESL, neither Chelsea nor City was included, and they both joined like hours afterwards. Funny oh, that really? They were also, yeah. yeah. Funny that they were also the first two clubs to leave um, yeah. because they had misgivings and they didn't really like it. Uh, but they were, you know, forced to join because of financial peer pressure. And then... Once there were actually signs that people were willing to back down, like Ed Woodward resigning and all of these things, you know, and kind of once fan bases really started protesting and things started trending towards, well, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. They were the first to say, well, you know, we didn't love it in the first place. Let's now back out, which I think makes perfect sense. Um, I don't know. I think some of the clubs were forced to join and some of the clubs were forced to leave. And obviously, like, not everyone has left, which I think is crazy. Um, you know, I think yeah. what, Barca and Real are still there. It's on standby, but only because isn't it? The they kind of have to be. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, it's simply because Perez runs the thing. He's obviously not going to leave until he like, financially has to. 
and uh, Laporta, the new Barca president, basically said for our financial situation, because you know how like they're in ludicrous amounts of debt, like billions of dollars of debt, Barcelona yeah. are. Um, you know, for our financial situation, this is a necessary thing. This is something we have to do. Like there's no other alternative. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's definitely an interesting case. Um, but yeah, I just think pathetic is frankly a great word to describe it. Um, because frankly, it felt terrifying, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, it really felt did. like a it felt like a united front. It felt like something that could honestly dismantle football permanently. But um I think, you know, they they hit us right at a time when a lot of us were almost in disbelief about it. But I think once the football community actually took action, that kind of really undermined, you know, and of course, UEFA is a massive part of that as well, unfortunately, because I'm not a fan <laughs> of UEFA, but, you know, they've done well here, if only to protect their own interest. But, um, you know, at the same time, like, there was almost this stunned silence for the first day or so before everybody really started protesting. Um, and I think that stunned silence is what it was what made it feel powerful. You know, the fact that we were also taken aback by this, that there weren't words to describe it and there weren't ways that we could do anything about it. You know, it, it, it kind of, as you said with Alfie, it felt a bit hopeless. It felt like the only thing you can do is, you know, to unite and to remain strong and to, hope beyond all hope even though it just didn't feel like there was any that things could rectify themselves which of course they now have um yeah yeah and i think that's also a lot of the reason why it was confusing what are your thoughts yeah well i'm I'm first of all delighted um that there has fallen apart and i like the point you made made on the silence because amidst this this outcry of um sort of opposition there was silence you know football stood still for a few days you know Chelsea played Brighton on the night that um it of course collapsed and I just I had no interest in that game I I, I literally football all of a sudden was like oh what's the point you know my, my sister said oh so would Will Lacazette be back for the Europa League semi-final and I was sort of said to her what's the point of even playing it that that's just what football yeah. felt like for a few days uh but now now we're heading back in the right direction um and that that's that's really really good to see uh and hopefully uh this can this sort of disastrous thing in in terms of a pit a moment in football history can really turn out to be something good hopefully with um some of these uh uninterested owners selling up because that that's what that's what football needs um regardless of the debt elite clubs are in um just before we move on what what did you make of arsenal's sort of announcement uh, on the exit you know we we were one of few clubs to actually apologize for our for our part in it and then Mikel Arteta's press conference today was also pretty interesting what, what, what were your thoughts on both of those incidents i think um the press conference especially was very telling for me you know just because like arteta met with the management and the players and there was genuinely a feeling that like he and his squad had been you know betrayed by management effectively right yeah like Kronky and uh vinai venkatesham had to come out and actually apologize to their manager for you know doing something that was against his wishes and that he thought was a bad idea um, he didn't know about it, 
until the news released. And then he was meant to, you know, he went and was forced to do a press conference on it while having absolutely no knowledge of anything that was going on, you know? Yeah. Um, it's unbelievable. Exactly. But I think that's how it was for everybody. You know, it was a blind side. It was confusing. And, you know, for the club to come out and apologize, I think is it's the right step, but it's not the only step, you know? I don't think they can apologize and then expect everything to go back to normal because that's just not how it works. Um, in part because, you know, they've shown their utter willingness to sacrifice everything that we as fans and that the players and that the coaching teams hold dear in order, you know, to kind of prioritize financial gain. And my question is, what's to keep them from doing that again? You know, six months down the line, Who's to say that football won't be in a place where this might happen again and there's less resistance, you know? Yeah. Um, and while I'm optimistic that it won't happen, I just think, like, again, the apology is the right step, but the club does need to go further in rectifying no the situation. Yeah. Whether they sign a contract with the English FA saying, you know, this won't happen, hard stop. We we will not and cannot join a, Euro a European Super League or anything mm. of the kind, you know? whether we need to put it in writing that this type of thing is, you know, it's insubordinate and it will not happen again, whatever it is, we need more assurances than just, you know, a half-hearted reactionary apology. Yeah. And unfortunately there was just PR written all over that apology. Uh, you know, uh, of course there had been uproar within the Arsenal community and the club, how they realized that they said it in the, in the, in the apology, they realized they've, they're on the back foot now. They have a lot of work to do to restore our trust. But you know, Mac, when when people like Florentino Perez come out and seem to do the same bloody interview every day and say the same thing, um, I really don't think that it has gone away, per, uh, like permanently at least. I think that there's potential for the issue to resurface, which would be uh, horrible. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think we need something in writing to make sure nothing like this can can ever happen again and i think that another important step that that needs to be taken is uh as i mentioned previously removing these owners um Kersey have to go uh that that's my opinion it i think it's quite commonly shared opinion now uh i'm going to the protest tomorrow night um and yeah i i want to voice my my distaste for for them and the way they run this club because you know this isn't Mikel Arteta or Edu that's taking us into this Super League this is Stan Kroenke there's no doubt in my mind um so yeah that, that that's just where where my thoughts stand on on the Kroenkes and I, I guess it's <laughs> I can guess your answer but where, where where's your thoughts lie on on those guys yeah, I mean, I've written about it in the past. Um, I've spoken about it in the past, but I think the Kroenke's leadership has always been pretty horrific. Yeah. You know? Um, I actually think when it originally came in, it wasn't an awful thing. Um, you know, the self-sustaining model was meant to be brilliant, um, and it worked, actually, until uh, UEFA instilled finan the financial fair play regulations yeah. based off of an outdated and obsolete set of financial points that basically crippled everything that KSE was meant to do. You know, mm. and then after that, um, Stan Kroenke said, well, all right, screw that. Let me treat this as a business. You know, let me rake in my profits. Anything I give to them is literally a loan with interest. You know, yeah, he. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just 
their ownership style was, you know, originally it kind of found to be at fault. But instead of changing, evolving, working with the club to move forwards, uh, KSC kind of shut down. You know, they, Kroenke especially, again, stopped investing in the club, stopped really caring about the club. It's taken his son, Josh, coming in and really talking with people to make any positive changes in terms of investment and strategy for moving forwards, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's not really a man with his ear to the ground, is he? He's not a man that cares, frankly, for the state of the club or for its fans or for its leadership. He might say he does in press releases. It's not true. No, you know, he cares. About he cares about exactly. He cares about the money that he's raking in, um, and the only time he'll shell out money is to make sure he will get that profit back. Um, so you know, it's not the type of ownership that can actually feasibly exist in modern football. But it's also not the type of ownership that will run a healthy and successful club. I mean, I've been crunky out for you know, going on five years now, simply just because it's diabolical leadership and it, and it needs to stop you know we need an owner who's not only going to invest yes of course but who will also work with the club to generate a better future both in terms of kind of diversity and equity um you know obviously there's the stop online abuse campaign you think he's running that no chance oh, right oh. right like it's just we need an owner who can work with the goals of this club. I mean, look at someone like Hector Bellerin, who's an ambassador for all of these things, including Forest Green Rovers, including a lot of, you know, mental health and LGBT organizations, right? Yeah. If the club wants to move forward in a progressive and positive way and have this, you know, an incredible global impact, we need an owner who can support that mission as well. And Kroenke absolutely does not. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that sums it up perfectly. He's just not right for what this club needs right now. And he's never, you know, you can say that, you know, he had some good early years, but I think you've got to attribute a lot of that to Arsene Wenger as well, who ran the club so brilliantly. Um, and, you know, the Cronkies didn't need to do anything. And, you know, the time has come where they need to and they're running us into the ground and they've they, they've really embarrassed me this week. Uh, and so many other Arsenal fans. And yeah, as I said, I'm going to voice my my uh, concern tomorrow. And let's hope that, as I mentioned earlier, that, that this awful thing that has happened to football this week can, can put the wheels in motion for really positive change. Um, but anyway, I've... <sighs> You know, I'm a bit bored of talking about boardroom activity in terms of football. So, let's, as we said at the start of the show, it's nice to be able to talk about actual football again. Let's talk football. Let's talk Everton. Uh, we're playing them tomorrow night uh, at the Emirates. Um, Everton have had a pretty good season, haven't they, Mac? Well, what are your overall thoughts on their their style of play, um, their their season? As I said. Uh, and perhaps some some key players we we should look out for. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, coming into this season, they were touted as a potential powerhouse. I mean, I remember, um, the last game, um, that Arsenal played before Arteta came in was it was the Arsenal Everton fixture at Goodison Park. Um, of course, managed at that time by Freddie Lungberg against Duncan Ferguson. Um, who was put in place after Andre Silva left Everton. I think it was Andre Silva. No, something Silva. Uh, Forget his name. Yeah, no. Uh, Marco Silva. Marco Silva. Marco go. Silva. That's Got the him. name. Andre Silva's the Frankfurt. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. it was Silva, regardless. Um, you know, and I remember it was big because 
Ancelotti and Arteta were both sitting in the stands, kind of facing off against each other, you know, as these things, you know, as kind of the game went out below. And I think it ended in a 1-1 draw. Very disappointing game. Actually, I remember we had a lot of good chances. But um, generally, though, Ancelotti has worked absolute wonders with this Everton team, you know. He's been given a group of players who are willing to listen, willing to kind of grow with him. Um, Especially early in the season, they reaped that reward. I mean, they were undefeated in the early running. Dominic Calvert-Lewin scored like 10 goals in his first seven games or something ridiculous like that. Um, You know, James was an incredible presence. Luca Dean is just a very talented player. Um, You know, frankly, they have talent all over the pitch. Um, And while it's not been working out perfectly for them in recent weeks you know they're still they are a team to be very wary of they're still an exciting team they're a team that can certainly score against you they're a team that will beat you in the midfield constantly which is a big issue um Mm -hmm. for us but yeah it's just generally it's been you know um they've been incredibly fun to watch i think it's then west really have been the two teams that have impressed me this year um yeah, I just think, especially now, as Arsenal enter a competition with a lot of injuries and Everton, you know, enter a competition also with kind of an injury-ravaged squad, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, yeah. not say what the backups can do, but kind of, I think it's going to be a really tense affair. Um, our star is starting to rise at least. We're finding a little bit of momentum, you know, the game against Fulham aside because it was just shit. Um we are, you know, really starting to kind of yeah. grow as a team and find a more unified purpose. I think I'm seeing it. Um, I think there will be a lot of publicity against us, against Everton. I think a lot of, you know, there was the Jamie Carragher clip where he went through every single team, every single big six team or, you know, ESL English team, whatever at the time that was playing this weekend and was like, all right, and go Everton and go Brighton and, you know, up all of these teams we don't want the big six teams to win we want to you know kind of shove it in their faces so i think they'll everton might be playing with a little bit of fire yeah under their in their bellies as well just to you know prove everybody wrong but yeah i think it'll be it'll be hard fought and hopefully hard won for arsenal yeah you know none of the players or managers were involved in in uh, the the Super League negotiations but yeah i i completely get all these clubs who have a bit of fire in their bellies uh, and yeah, it, it does make complete sense. And I agree, Everton are uh, can be a really fun side to watch. Um, I agree on on Dean. I think that he's a really superb left back. Uh, gets up and down really well. Really, really quite underrated. And I, I, I think they, they might just be a right back away from being a proper, proper good side. I, I know Seamus Coleman's a decent right back, but you know, in comparison to Dean, you're not not the sort of same standard. Uh, but Everywhere else on the pitch, they've they've got some really good options and add some depth, a right back, uh, maybe a winger, and and they are a real force to be reckoned with, especially under Ancelotti. Uh, and yeah, what about Dominic Calvert Lewin? What a season he's had! I know he's, I think he's injured at the moment, but yeah, he's been real, really, really fantastic. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's Everton. Um, let's get on to let's get on to Arsenal. Um, as you mentioned, Mac. A uh, few injury concerns. You've got Pierre Mkhitaryan who will continue to miss out through uh, as he's still recovering from malaria. Uh, you've got Alex Lacazette who strained his hamstring last week. Thankfully, it's it's only a, a small injury, grade one hamstring injury, so he could be back to play Villarreal on Thursday. 
Uh, and then Martin Erdegaard and David Louise are sort of in that sort of rehabilitation stage where they're sort of in training, but sort of aren't, but probably won't be available for Everton. And then you've got Kieran Tierney, who is apparently two or th- three weeks away from returning to full training. So, you know, that's five players who are out, but five players who aren't out for too long, uh, which you really like to see. We're very close to having a fully fit squad again. Um, touch some wood, so uh, that that can uh, that can remain the case, and no no injuries against Everton. Um, so there are a few uh, key sort of talking points as a result of those injuries. I think the main one is striker. Should we should we get straight into that, Mac? Who who would you prefer to see up front with both Lacazette and Aubameyang uh, missing? Uh, I've got a feeling about the player who will start up top, uh, but who would you like to see up top? Um, it's an interesting case because I've, I'd actually be very, very happy with either Martinelli or Falar and Balogun. Um, they're both incredibly yeah. talented players, you know, and I really enjoy watching their competing styles. Martinelli would be pure pace, um, obviously so aggressive, very, very good at leading the press as well. Yeah. Um, I think it would be it'll be interesting to see, you know, the battle of him against Yeri Mina and Michael Keane. Yeah. Um, you know, they are both massive and also rather slow. So that could definitely be fun. Yeah. Um I think, you know, Balogun is probably more of a central striker, someone more built in the Lacazette mode. He's a he's an instinctive finisher, he's very, very talented. Um, I do think his hold up play struggles a bit, especially under very physical pressure, um, which we really haven't yeah. seen him face much, you know. Um, it's weird though. If I had to predict someone to start at number nine, I think I'll honestly predict Inketia. Yeah, same. Um, which I don't enjoy, frankly. I think you know yeah. he he's in a poor run of form. Obviously, I love him to absolute pieces, and he scored the equalizer against Fulham. Yeah, which is amazing. But like, at the same time, you know, out of the three, he's the only center forward who knows how to run our tactical setup. Um, mm-hmm. he's the only one that kind of has been coached in that role, and of course. Balogun has made his return to the first team after a long, long spell out just because he's 19. Um, but yeah, I just think, you know, Arteta will trust Eddie to do the job. Do I think he'll do the job? No. But, you know, I think <laughs> I, I, I think he'll definitely get the start. Um, and then, yeah, it, it'll just be interesting to see how he kind of takes that burden on his shoulders because while he has been prolific in the Europa League as per always, um, we haven't really seen the best of him in the league this season. Um, no. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, how he can recover from that with the knowledge that he is kind of our sole option there. That He doesn't have the support of some of the veteran players. Yeah. And you say that we sort of haven't, um, seen the best of him it's because we've we've barely seen him full stop um so yeah i mean good for eddie that he'd get a chance he wouldn't be he wouldn't be my pick up top uh i'd really be in favor of martinelli considering inketi is likely to part ways with arsenal this summer and you know why not just think about the future you know every single premier league game now is pretty much a dead rubber you know we're really focusing on that europa league um so yeah, that my preference would be Martinelli. I also not Balogun because Balogun just hasn't really been that involved with the first team, and I just think it would be a bit too early to chuck him in. Uh, don't think we'll see much of Balogun for the remainder of this season. Maybe at the start of next, uh, with a proper preseason under his belt. 
but yeah, it, it does open up an interesting conversation. Um, and you know, who knows what we'll see. Uh, let's direct conversation towards uh, towards the back then. You know, Granite Shaka's been playing left back lately. Do you do you see Mikel Arteta persisting with that with that idea of Shaka uh, playing in that sort of auxiliary left centre back, uh, left mid left central midfield left back sort of strange little role which he seems to suit really well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there aren't many amazing alternatives, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we could, of course, play Cedric back there, but I think the system that we've had, you know, almost switching back to a sort of three-four-three, a la Project Restart, but you know, declaring um, Chambers at right back and usually Saka at left back to then have him go play number ten, and yeah. you know, stick Jacka back there. I think it's been really, really productive. Um, in terms of our creation, I think it's it's a system that works. Um, it's a system that really does have prize a heavier focus on the midfield and on controlling possession, you know, and it has created chances that has looked good. Um, it's also important to recognize that Arsenal have had a week off since their last game, you know, yeah. with no midweek fixture. They've had a week to really cement, you know, chemistry and tactical training in in you know kind of in training um you know to get a more solid foundation under their feet to recover from the fulham i want to say the fulham defeat it wasn't a defeat yeah. it drew it felt like a defeat though yeah. every draw feels like a loss these days but um yeah it's it's just you know i think until tierney returns we can't really have a true fourback um cedric is a good deputy there but at the same time I'd like to see him off the right more, especially if he will be combining with Pepe. Um, speaking of Pepe, I really do hope he starts. But, you know, yeah. conversation for a minute later. Um, yeah, I think at the back, we will continue to play the people who have been key for us. It will likely be Shaka, it will likely be Pablo Mari, and it will likely be Rob Holding. I hope it's um, Mari. Yeah. What was that? I, I hope it's Mari. Uh, oh, I, I absolutely Gabriel. agree. Just doesn't quite suit this system at the moment quite as well. His erraticism is, is a bit of a problem. No, and I think he's he's the best athlete out of all of them. Yeah. But he's still young. He's still inexperienced. And I think he does very well in kind of that double center back role, you know, on the left side with usually paired with the experience of David Luiz, someone who can kind of talk him through everything. Yeah. But, you know, I think at the same time... Um, he just he isn't ever sure whether to you know he loves to kind of challenge high and press high on the on the halfway line but i think yeah. at this kind of more central center back role he's been a lot more insecure about whether to drop back and be the last line or to press up and i think it's you know it's leaving holes behind thomas party that were not particularly well filled by our defenders yeah you can't um, afford often, to have that when yeah. you're playing pretty much party in midfield alone or God forbid, El Nenny again. That was horrible. Oh to watch. no, no. Let's. Oh, I forgot about that, Mac. Why are you reminding me? God, that was well, because I can't have it happen again. I don't want it. Like, you, oh, oh no, that was disastrous. Yeah. But yeah, no, anyway, I reckon Party will probably slot back in there alongside Sabios, and and Sabios will play that strange left midfield sort of left centre mid yeah. strange role in front of Shaka, sort of supporting whoever's at, at left wing and then yeah absolutely as, as, and i don't think that we'll rush um 
Martin Odegaard back, probably see him start against Villarreal. So probably Smith Rowe in that 10 role and Saka on the right. Um, and then again, I probably think therefore that Martinelli will start on the left because, uh, you know, he just seems to quite suit this, this recent system on that left-hand side. Or Pepe. Forgot about Pepe. Yeah, that's what I mean though. I mean, like... Yeah. In, in a dream scenario, we're seeing Martinelli start up front with Pepe on the left. Yeah, um, that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, me too. I mean, but I'd like to see Pepe on the left, even if Enketia does start. Um, I mean, Martinelli dropped down to the bench. He wasn't great against Fulham, to be fair. Yeah. No, but I think, you know, when Pepe was introduced, he wasn't amazing, but I think he's also someone who does very well when he can get confident time under his belt. Um, yeah. You know, he kind of, they're constantly against Fulham, he was double and triple teamed. Because they said, hey, Martinelli's, you know, speedy and he's their main threat on the counter because we just kept feeding him balls. So let's, you know, double team that flank. And then Pepe comes on and he's, as he was very much in his first season, expected to create all of the chances with very little support. You know, Ceballos was tiring and also dropping in to help El Nenny, who was, you know, gassed Uh, at that point. El Nenny, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Xhaka wasn't (laughs) getting high enough up to support because that's not his job, you know. Um, we were kind of struggling in the center. Lacazette was injured at that point, and in, you know, Inketia wasn't really making the same kind of deep dropping runs to collect it in the midfield. So Pepe was really isolated out there. I think, you know, having him start and having him more integrated into the tactical setup could be really, really useful. Um, but if he doesn't start, I think you know it could be a good redemption day for Martinelli. You know, not that he was particularly poor, but I think he he is still slightly one dimensional as a player. You know. He's yeah. fast, he makes the starting runs, he will always be going for goal. But once you kind of adjust to that and start really plugging the gaps that he wants to drive into, his threat is very much reduced because he doesn't quite have the guile to beat players to consistently or to have, you know, the perfect force first touch or to play that killer ball, you know? I'd like I'd like to see Pepe start simply just because he does have those traits and he can frustrate the mess out of a defense, especially with Seamus Coleman, who's Still talented, but aging. I think yeah. Pepe might just be the player to, you know, really cause him issues. Yeah, and he is good on that left-hand side. I think he, I just think that his, his, his threat is sort of consistent. Um, and that, that's what you want from Pepe. Um, so, yeah, I think overall then we've got, oh, goalkeeper. Do, do we stick with, with Ryan after his? I thought he was pretty good against Fulham. Yeah, I mean, he did like three things. He caught two crosses, punched away a corner, and picked the ball out of the back of his own net off a penalty, right? Like, yeah, he was, you know, for all intents and purposes, nothing he could do to save that penalty. Um, You know, kind of like, the, the, there's the, it's a bit hopeless for him. Um, The yeah. one real good chance and shot he faces is a spot kick. Um, yeah. But like, I just think, you know, in terms of his distribution, he's about equal with Leno. He does like to lump it long a bit, a little bit more, which I'm not the biggest fan of. Um, but like at the same time, he's a much more comfortable player in claiming crosses. And I think if we're, yeah, if we're going to be working against, yeah, exactly. If we're going to be working against Luca Dean and Seamus Coleman with Dominic Calvert Lewin in the box, I think that stopping crosses could be a good idea. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, you know. We have two of the best crossers in the Premier League whipping balls into one of the best aerial strikers in the Premier League. Yeah. We might want a goalie that can challenge in the air. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and you know as long as we don't concede another first minute back heel i think we should be okay god do you remember that game yeah god god that was during a bit of a tough time wasn't it um yeah we've had a lot of those (laughs) yeah anyway um yeah so i think ryan could start again so we'll go ryan in between the sticks then we've got i think chambers back at right back probably and then holding absolutely holding a marie in the center of defense then you've got um shaka at left back a double pivot of um party and Ceballos, and saka on the right smith row in the hole pepe on the left and and kessier up top uh yeah that would be definitely be my predicted lineup uh not necessarily preferred but yeah we'll, we'll see what comes of it Okay, so I think that's pretty much everything covered in terms of what we, we what we wanted to talk about this week in terms of you know actual football, which, which was nice to talk about for a little while, a bit of detachment from all the Super League rubbish. Um, and yeah, let, let's just end with with a spotlight. I know football has taken the back seat this week, but let's shine a spotlight on some football, Mac. Got anything uh, you'd like to cast an eye on? Yeah, I've got two things actually. Um, it's Stuff. two different English strikers, one past, one present. Um, okay. The past English striker is our beloved Ian Wright. The yeah, present English guy. striker is Patrick Bramford. Um, specifically for his comments after the Leeds game. You know? Yeah. He literally said, look at the uproar that's been happening around, you know, all of these things. UEFA has been against it. The presidents of nations have been against it, you know? Every single person is uniting to face the Super League threat. Why can't we do this about racism? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's an important question, you know, to kind of dovetail with topics that we've been talking about in recent weeks, especially. Um, it's, you know, at a time when we are looking at a bit of a revolution in football where, you know, human rights and diversity and inclusion is becoming really paramount to how this game grows and continues forwards. Um and then to see the football community come out in solidarity with one particular cause so strongly that they actually make change, it does kind of beg the question of what could have been different. Um, you know, and I think taking that into Ian Wright, he has really in the past couple of weeks become even more of a figurehead for the club than I already thought he could be, you know. Um, his insight is profound, he's bright, he's joyful, but he also is passionate, you know, he's a soulful person. Um, I think I ta- I spoke about him briefly during our David Rowcastle tribute, but again, you know, that quote, remember who you are, where you've come from, and what you represent. I think at this point, yeah. Ian Wright is really starting to kind of epitomize the Arsenal, you know, not to, the Arsenal man, right? But under Wenger, we talked about this concept of the Arsenal gentleman. The fact that you can't just be a, a fantastic player, you have to be a good person as well. Um, and I frankly think that, you know, he does a lot for the club already, but I'd like to see him in management. I really would like to see Ian Wright take a bigger role at this club, especially as we kind of move yeah. forward with a lot of our, you know, more social initiatives, right? I think, yeah, I just, yeah. he's... No, I, I agree. I think he's a he's a brilliant ambassador for the club. And he's taken a stance against um, against the Cronkies too, which is which is fantastic. And uh, I can't remember who tweeted. I, I think it might have been Patrick Timmons, but I can't remember. But they just said, I don't think anyone quite understands how important that is that an ambassador of the club has taken a stance against him. And 
yeah, that that is huge, and you love Wrighty for that. Um, yeah, he just speaks his mind. Classic and, Patrick Timmons um, post too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. What's your spotlight? Uh, I'm just gonna go for Phil Foden's performance last night. Um, he was brilliant, wasn't Man he? City against Villa. Yeah, he was just tore it up. And there was one moment especially that I'm gonna shine the spotlight on. It was sort of an aimless crossfield ball by Carl uh, Walker and uh, Foden. It, it literally just looked so hopeless, and he brought it down expertly and just sped past. Matty Cash as, as if he wasn't there and Matty Cash is a pretty good defender uh, and yeah it, it was just the most the most brilliant piece of piece of football the the, the control the touch the skill you, you you love you really do love to see it and you Phil Foden's a joy to watch like like Bakayo Saka at Arsenal he's, he's one of those players that you just know is going to be at the forefront of European football for years to come and, and that is really good from an English fan perspective. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, he, if you can find a compilation of his performance, do, do find it. Cause um, he was, he was magnificent. Yeah. I'm not sure um, if city do the whole like open mic or every touch thing that Arsenal do, but they freaking should. He's yeah. so much fun to watch. I mean, yeah. you see him on that, you that see him guy. dribbling and the way he shifts his weight. And it's clear that he's learned from Raheem Sterling. You know, he's so tricky. Um, and then you look at the way he mm. looks on the half turn, the way he'll spin defenders, the way he really hunts for space every single time that his team is on the ball. And it's very Kevin De Bruyne-esque. Of course, he's his own player, but, yeah. you know, they've... they've no, but him, you yeah. do sense that he's a mix of all these mix of all these stars and he's just going to turn out to be the best out of all of them. Like, City have so many, like, um, injured players at the moment. And it doesn't matter because they've got Foden, who is already just so so good. Uh, and yeah, yeah, as I said, really positive from an English perspective. Future Ballon d'Or winner? Question mark. I uh, potentially uh, depends how sort of Mbappe and, and Haaland develop. Uh, you know, yeah. tend to go to the big goal scorers, and I can see them notching up Messi, Ronaldo sort of numbers, and it will probably go to those guys. But yeah, who knows? Uh, perhaps the Ballon d'Or and, and things like that will go in a different direction and appreciate players for skill and artistry and assisting and creativity, just all of that sort of stuff. So who knows? Uh, he is destined to be one of the best in the world, world so very possibly. Um, yeah, uh, so that that's all I think we, as I said, that we, we wanted to cover for this week. Thanks for joining us on episode nine of the Extra Canon podcast. Thanks for joining me, Mac. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you to all of you, you know, for listening. If you do live in London and are an Arsenal fan and want to go out to this grunky out protest, please do. Um, we could use your voice. We could use your spirit. Uh, obviously, I'm not there. I'm across the sea in snowy Ohio in April. You can be excused. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, I will still be lending my voice, lending my very minuscule Twitter account, um yeah just generally i think it's you know this is a turning point for the club and it's important to recognize that we need to you know start moving forward in a positive direction so yeah yeah and as i said i'll be there uh so yeah as many of you do come down as possible please uh 6 p.m emirates stadium be there uh and yeah let, let's force this guy out of the club because he has to go hashtag if, cronky you, out. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to meet the celebrities that are rob worthington 
sorry, Bertha Worthington <laughs> and uh, Alfie Cairns Colshaw. I believe they'll both be there potentially yeah. along with Charlie. I think Charlie would. Yeah, I thought yeah. Charlie May would show up as well. But yeah, it'll be it'll be a good crew. Yeah, yeah, we love your Arsenal is going to be represented uh in full flow so yeah do do uh if somehow you recognize me i don't know how you'd know what you look like and if you are going and you listen to the show do come and say hi um yeah it, it would be nice to to meet some of the listeners um anyway uh thanks for joining us on this week's extra canon podcast episode uh episode nine brought to you by we love you arsenal productions should say that more often because it's, it's just such a cool cool name um but yeah uh as i said cheers for joining us uh see you next week and hopefully we'll be talking on the back of a positive first leg performance against villarreal thanks for joining us yeah god i hope so see you later guys goodbye